Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is November 30th, 2023, and I'm joined in studio again today by IPI's resident scholar and my good friend, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today, we're going to ask the question, who's afraid of an anarcho capitalist. And Dr. Matthews, this was the title of a piece that you wrote recently Mm -hmm. in The Hill, I believe, about the recent um, political change in Argentina, where a self-described libertarian, uh, Javier Millet, was elected as president. And the uh, journalistic outlets of the world are in somewhat of a consternation about the idea of Argentina electing a radical But, you know, absent the election in Argentina, the news about Argentina for the last couple of decades has been what an epic financial disaster the country has has been. So maybe the election of a radical is exactly the right thing that they need. And it's interesting because when the media would talk about this, they would talk about far right wing extremist wild man. They focus on his hair because it's a little ruffled at times. Mm -hmm. They focus on his cloned dogs. And other things. Yeah, let's talk and more about that later. We'll talk more about the clone <laughs> dogs later. But they, they, the media just seemed to not understand why Argentines would vote for, in fairly good, strong percentage points, like 56%, uh, for someone who yeah, it wasn't a, even close. self-styled libertarian, yeah. a narco-capitalist, over the guy who is the socialist, Peronist economic minister, Sergio Massa, who had been running things for a while. And of course, they've got 140 percent inflation rate. They're they're bankrupt. Let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about Argentina. Argentina has always interested me. I've never been there. But prior to World War Two. Argentina's GDP was larger than the United States. Argentina and Venezuela both yeah. used to be sort of jewels of the of the Western Argentina Hemisphere. Argentina is, if you were going to list countries purely based on the blessing of natural resources, <laughs> Argentina would be in the top ten, mm-hmm. if not the top five. Uh, they have they have incredible natural resources. Argentina historically has a highly educated population. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful country. And if you were to sort of just scan the world and say, show me a country where the distance between the quality of its natural resources and the quality of its governance is the widest possible, is the greatest gap, I think Argentina might be one that you might suggest because, again, they, they have such such incredible natural resources, such incredible blessings but yet, for the ent- almost the entire 20th century and 21st century, they have been governed by disastrous administrations. And of course, uh, you know the Peronistas, you know, going all the way Juan back Peron. to going all, all the way back to Juan Perón and his wife Evita, and then the, and Madonna. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Yes, and the Peronist parties and the mm-hmm. Peronists that have followed in their footsteps. They've been corrupt. They've been socialist. Um, and still the case. Yes. And so, look, if if you and I were, in fact, years ago, I met a guy who was running a free market think tank in Argentina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, was going to say, if you and I lived in Argentina, we would have spent our entire careers agitating for what just happened. Mm-hmm. 
for the for the election of a president who had a limited government, free market, individual liberty orientation. And so when we look at this political news in Argentina, and, and I think, I don't mean to speak for you, but I kind of feel like we would both say it's about time. Right. And they did have somebody come in for a, a decade or so ago who was going to try to move it in the more conservative economic responsibility approach, but he didn't have a lot of success. And it's not clear yet whether Javier Millet is going to have a lot of success because he's got a big hill to climb. Yeah. And I don't know enough about the Argentine political system to know just how much power the president actually has. You know what I mean? I mean, it it may actually be that the president can only do so much. Mm -hmm. You know, it's probably more significant that the Argentine population chose this particular and, and younger people. Yes, exactly. And we're seeing the same thing happening here in the States mm-hmm. as younger people are beginning to ba- abandon Joe Biden. Younger people in Argentina were abandoning these, the parentists. Yeah. Look, if, if you're a young person, okay, you have done a lot of work actually in recent, in the last, I don't know, year, 18 months on, on some of the different South American countries, mm-hmm. right? And on how you wrote, you wrote, you've written a couple pieces on how the tendency in South America has been to elect authoritarians. Right. Uh, Increasingly, it yes, is. Yes, yeah. you know. And so so it's not just a bright spot for Argentina, but it's a bright spot for South America mm-hmm. to see that, our, that, the, that the voters in Argentina would buck the trend. Uh, their neighboring country, Chile, has been going in the opposite direction. Right. And it, they're trying to come back. But Chile mm-hmm. used to be considered an economic... Uh, powerhouse yeah. back in the 80s and 90s. Well, Chile was like what Argentina could have been, right? Right. And Chile went to private social security accounts. They did a number of things mm-hmm. using a, a University of Chicago economist, sort of moving in that direction. And then they abandoned it, Peru and others. Uh, it's it's interesting to see how so many of the countries there may have flirted with a sort of free market approach at mm-hmm. some point. The economy started to benefit, and then the socialists moved back in. Argentina has some of the world's best art, uh, agricultural land. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all thinking these days about Ukraine, and we're reminded about how Ukraine was considered Europe's breadbasket, right? Well, Argentina was the breadbasket of South America. And, of course, we have cowboys here in Texas, but they have the vaqueros there. The, the vaqueros. They have and ranches and other things similar they're, to they're Texas. They're very proud. I mentioned earlier that I had dinner with, you know, with a, a group of people from international think tanks, and, and one of the people is from Argentina. They're very proud of their beef, their beef production. They're very proud of their agricultural production, their wheat production, and that sort of thing. Uh, and this goes back to the point we were making earlier about how they are so blessed with natural resources and the, the you know the vaquero, you know my wife is really into horses, and so I'm, I'm familiar with the vaquero tradition mm-hmm. in Argentina and all that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it, it, I mean, if it, again, you know, if you were to look around the world as an American and say, who should our peer nations be, with strong economies, great natural resources, uh, free market orientation, you would look around and you would say, uh, Australia. Mm-hmm. New Zealand, India, Argentina, Chile, um, Uruguay, right? And Venezuela. Venezuela, be. absolutely. These are the countries that you would say really should be aligned with us uh, because we share a particular vision. And, and the outlier has really been Argentina mm-hmm. because of this Peronista political orientation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, 
so we, I know we want to talk about this, but I, I, I think it's important to give our podcast listeners sort of the, the bigger sort of 30,000-foot sort of picture, that, that Argentina has always had this incredible economic potential. They've always had this incredible human capital potential with a highly educated, hardworking workforce. Uh, one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of immigrants from Argentina to the U.S. is that Argentina is actually a pretty nice place to be if it only had good governance, right? <laughs> and didn't have like 140% inflation. I mean, the, the, you know, we tend to get immigrants in the U.S. from places that they're trying to escape for a better livelihood. When's the last time you encountered an immigrant from Argentina? And I'm guessing not, ver not recently, because it, it is such a great place to live. It's such a great place to be. It's like the only thing they're missing is reasonable governance. So when Millet came in, he decided, he said he campaigned on uh, eliminating the peso, abandoning the peso and dollarizing the economy, shutting the country's central bank and slashing government spending and attacking the Argentina's huge debt load. All of which you'd say, that's exactly what needs to be done. Yeah. But that's what, some of that has got the people pulling their hair out. You're going to abandon the peso and move to the dollar. You're going to dollarize the economy. Uh, and my goodness, eliminate the country's central bank? How can you do something like that? If some of our listeners know only one thing about Argentina, probably the only one thing that they know is that every decade or so, Argentina has to go before the World Bank or whatever and beg forgiveness for its loans, right? right? Uh, they have been a, Argentina has been a net debtor to the world economy. He's exactly right when he's talking about that kind of thing. And I mean, I mean, if you had a central bank that has done as bad a job as theirs has, they probably should be shut down they and put out of business. Right. Why don't and, we talk for a minute about dollarization? Mm -hmm. I mean, let, let, why don't you explain what that means and what different forms of dollarization are? Right. So we'll take a little sidetrack here to talk about the, what the dollarization means. And I'm reading from Investopedia. Their definition, dollarization usually occurs in developing countries when a weak central monetary authority, click, yeah, got that. Yeah, check, uh, check that box. On an unstable economic government. Check, check that box. <laughs> the main reason for dollarization is to receive the benefits of greater stability in the value of currency over a country's domestic currency. So that's what they're trying to do with that. Now, it, uh, and... There are, so we'll do this little sidebar on so, dollarization. So when you say dollarization, we're specifically talking about the U.S. dollar. We're not using right. that term as a general term. It's a specific term, the U.S. dollar. And so I went and looked on this. There are 11 countries that officially dollarize, that the do U.S. dollar is their official cu currency. So if you're in that country, literally... You are using U.S. dollars. You're, using, You're not having to convert anything. That, that's right. Okay. Now, you might have some other currencies that people spend, yeah, but yeah, yeah. the dollar is their, is their primary currency. Mm. And then, of course, the five territories, U.S. territories, the dollar is the primary currency. Right. And then there are 65 countries that peg their currency to the U.S. dollar. And, so, and this, when you told me this earlier today in the office, this is mind-blowing to me. I had no idea that there were that many countries who do this. And, and so... Again, dollarization is essentially turning over your country's monetary policy to the United you're, States. You're outsourcing yeah, your you're monetary outsourcing, policy right. to the to, to yeah. Jerome Powell in yeah. the United yeah, States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, 
we might not think is a great is that great of an idea, yeah. but given some of the countries, it's much yeah, better no, no, than no, what it, they it's, have. It's kind of a low bar, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, we we're not 100% enthusiastic about US monetary policy, but it it might be better than, you know, the the Mariana central bank's monetary policy, you know. So here's here's the interesting thing. I went and looked up because there's 193 countries in the UN. So if you take 65 countries that peg their currency to the dollar, another 11 countries that are completely dollarized, you've got 76 countries, well over a third of the world. It's amazing. I had no idea. Of the countries in the yeah. world. Yeah. And, of course, most of these are smaller countries and so forth, yeah. but well over, well over a third of the countries essentially are pegged to the U.S. dollar. So it's, it's interesting to see that. And, of course, there's, bit, there's pluses and minuses. You get rid. You can't. You can't control monetary policy. Um, you can't. Well, which essentially means you can't play games with monetary policy. Which is policy. exactly right. Yeah, that yeah, means yeah. flip side of the coin. Right. So the central bank can't control the monetary policy. On the other hand, the central bank can't ruin monetary exactly, policy. Exactly. Exactly. They because can't destroy it, it. Because you know we have we have a we have a hard enough time in the United States keeping an air gap between Federal Reserve monetary policy and U.S. politics. Yes. You know what I mean. Um, in, in developing countries and third world countries, I mean, you just don't have that air gap. You just don't have that separation, right? So the 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 dictator of the country, the head of the country says, you know what? I think we need looser monetary policy. And guess what? The next day they have looser monetary policy. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of these countries, it might be that outsourcing it to the United States is literally the best possible option. Right. Because the inflation and other mm-hmm. things that happens. Because yeah. what the central bank is able to do is when the government, and he wants to, uh, Mille wants to cut spending, that's got people hair on, hair on fire also. Yeah. Because Argentina, like many other Latin American countries, and increasingly the United States, has a lot of transfer payments. Yeah. A lot of people on the payroll. A lot of subsidies. A lot of and, subsidies right. and things like that. Yeah. So once you do that, and the government can, if when the government can't afford its debt, then it just starts printing money, and that's where you yeah. get the inflation problem. Let's stick with dollarization for a second, because I think this is, well, I think it's really interesting. Um, because, again, as I said, I had no idea there were that many countries who essentially pegged their currency to the U.S. dollar. Uh, so, you know, we're struggling here. We're choking on like 7 and 5% inflation, because mm-hmm. we were used to 2 and 3% inflation. And we're down. Yeah, yeah. No, and it, it, it's, it's coming under control. Um, but... If you're a country like Argentina and you're dealing with 140% inflation, right. and there are other countries that are worse, right. Venezuela's worse, Zimbabwe's worse. Zimbabwe's one of the ones that dollarized yeah. and just uses the dollar. Yeah, because it's like just throw up their hands and surrender, right? <laughs> so obviously we can't do this. And, and there's a certain amount of sense to this because, and I've told other people this, my guess is the dollar and maybe even some other currencies were the de facto currency because people didn't want to take uh, Argentine pesos right. because they weren't going to be worth anything. Exactly, like they, they give me a, the give me a wheelbarrow full, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so you you have a sense in which if you were walking into a store, if you were giving them Argentine pesos, they may or may not do. But if you had dollars in your uh, mm-hmm. in your pocket in Argentina, they well, would take and you them. And in. I have, you and I have both traveled internationally enough to know that you will occasionally find yourself in a situation where a vendor would frankly rather you give him U.S. Absolutely. dollars. Absolutely. Then, then the, you know, the, the standard the thing there. when you enter the country, don't convert all your dollars to the local currency because you're going to have people 
who will literally give you a better deal mm-hmm. if you give them U.S. dollars rather than the, the native currency. Right. Okay. So let's talk. Let's just let's underscore dollarization. That there's essentially two kinds of dollarization. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right. One is to literally do away with your country's currency. Correct. And say, we're just going to use U.S. dollars. We're going to dollars. Okay. The other is to quote unquote peg your currency to the U.S. dollar. And, and so peg- what you may do there is you may say our uh, our uh, our particular currency, we're going to peg it one to one, maybe mm-hmm. two to one, maybe three to one. So it's an exchange rate. It's You're literally rate. setting an exchange rate. You're saying, I mean, depending on the country, you mm-hmm. might say, you know, 10 of our currency is worth one U.S. dollar or two of our currency is worth one U.S. Right. dollar. And this came about Bretton Woods after after World War II got together and they determined that the U.S. currency with U.S. The U.S. government and our dollar was going to be sort of the de facto world currency. Yeah. But you still had the gold standard. And so when most of the countries went off the gold standard in the 70s, many of the countries said, we still need something to be able to right. sort of peg it to so that we know we've got a, 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 a stable value there. Mm-hmm. And so they, many of them went with the dollar. But that's part of what they're trying to do is to find something that they can peg their their money to to have a stable and reliable value in their in their money. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I think it was a mistake for us to ever move off the gold standard. But you, you have to have some kind of standard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, so the point here is dollarization is not an insane, crazy, radical thing for Millet to be proposing. It's actually probably the smartest, soundest thing. It's the sensible thing. thing to do if yeah. you've not been able to manage your money. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And he's not proposing pegging. He's literally proposing doing away with the nation's currency. Right. And, and replacing it with the dollar. There is some discussion going on there as, as to when he gets installed. Will it? Will he actually be able to do that? Or will he find it easier yeah. just to do a pegging right. and go with the pegging? But if, even pegging would be better than... Even even indexing the the Argentine peso to the U.S. dollar mm-hmm. would be better than what they have right now. If the, you keep the, the see that see this is the thing, right? The problem is it's also easier to undo. Right. <laughs> that's, that's that's the other problem. Okay, so so we've covered dollarization and we have really underscored the fact that it's actually a pretty sane and rational thing to mm-hmm. do. Getting rid of the central bank. Yeah. So getting so if you're going to dollarize, you don't need a central you, bank. You don't need anymore. a central bank, right? right. Okay, because they they're in charge of setting monetary policy, determining how much money is yeah. in there. Well, they don't, the central bank course, can't control how Friedman much money. Of course, Milton argued that we don't need a central bank either. Right. But okay, they they certainly don't if they're going to dollarize. Okay, so what are some of the other policies that he has been talking about introducing? Dramatically, cut, he uses slashing federal spending. Okay. And he uses a chainsaw that's right. he to had, emphasize he, that's right. that he, he's he, going to he's going to slash. He, he several of his campaign appearances and commercials and things. He literally was wielding a chainsaw, right? <laughs> Which again, I think is great theater. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, if you're if you're on the dole, mm-hmm. right? If you're a recipient of of government subsidies, you probably don't like that idea. But look, the fact of the matter is, is that he won with a significant majority, right? And, and again, I want to go back to this point. This is not so much about him. It's about the Argentine people, that this is what they chose. Mm-hmm. They chose him. They chose a change in, in, in path. And that's really the most encouraging thing, not him and his hairstyle and his dogs. And it was something of a surprise to the to the pollsters and so yeah. forth. They thought it was going to be fairly Look, close. We, I, we, you and I are both careful watchers of the news, and you didn't hear much news about this election until after it was over. Yeah. Right. And then it was after it was over. It was like it was splashed everywhere because it was unexpected and, and remarkable. 
Okay, so um, let's talk about the dogs for a second. Tell right. me about the dogs, because I'm so, a dog guy. Uh, he had a dog named Conan who was who was dying, okay. and so he cloned Conan and created five dogs. So he's got five cloned dogs. Cloned dogs. Yes, five cloned dogs, one of which he named Conan, but the other four, which is what the media tend to focus on, he named after economists. So he has Milton, named after Milton Friedman. <laughs> this has, is my kind of guy. He has Murray, named after Murray Rothbard. Okay, all right. And he has Robert and Lucas, named after Robert Lucas Jr., who was an economist yep. at um, University of Chicago and won the uh, the Nobel Prize for Economics. And so he didn't name any of his dogs Canes or Galbraith. No, he didn't name it. <laughs> or Marks no or Lennon. No Marks or Lennon. Right? Yeah. No, the previous Argentina elected officials would have named their dogs Marx, Lenin, right? Trotsky. I, I, I had a friend in college in my undergraduate days who dated a girl uh, who was from South America. I can't remember where. And she had a dog that she named Che. <laughs> and had a picture of Che Guevara on the uh, poster on the wall. Okay, so let's let's talk, a, just in, in wrapping things, let's talk about South America sort of in general, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, your wife actually has a sort of a, a historic connection to Peru. Spent a year in Peru as a foreign exchange yeah, student. Yeah, and, and the uh, her parents took in uh, Bolivians twice as foreign exchange students in Iowa. Yeah, so, so, so you and your wife maintain this ongoing interest, essentially. Um, you know, if you go back to, like, the Monroe Doctrine, the Monroe Doctrine essentially was, this is our hemisphere. Mm-hmm. We will guard our hemisphere. Stay out of our hemisphere. Don't come over here and make trouble in our hemisphere. We've kind of abandoned that. Oh, yeah. Because South America, by and large, is an economic disaster. Other than... As you have pointed out, Chile for the last couple decades, although they're going in the wrong direction. Go, and, and they may be turning that yeah. around. Uruguay is doing pretty well. Uruguay is And we good. have a friend who was the Trump administration's ambassador to Uruguay mm-hmm. who tells a very good story about Uruguay. Mexico used to be a little more right. uh, stable and conservative. It has gone, gone with down. AMLO. Central America the same Central, way. Nicaragua is a basket yeah. case. You could make a limited government argument. I would not make this argument, but you could make this argument that we should be more focused. I'm a complete supporter of our helping Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I'm a complete supporter of our defending Taiwan. I'm a complete supporter of our helping Israel, all that sort of stuff. What I find interesting in the foreign policy discussion is that there is no no one is making the argument, let's just pay attention to our own hemisphere. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We don't need to worry about stuff going on on the other side of the world. Why don't we start worrying more about what's going on in Mexico, Central America, and South America? And to the extent the administration has done that, they've typically favored the leftists more. Right. And then, of course, you have Kamala Harris, who was put in charge of what's called the Northern Triangle Mm -hmm. to help find the root causes of immigration. As far as I know, she hasn't done anything in that regard. Our immigration problem is not driven by... Now, Europe has an immigration problem with people coming from Africa and the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Our immigration problem has nothing to do with that hemisphere. Our immigration problem has to do with Central America, Mexico, and South America. Well, we are actually getting more people from Asia, Russia. Right, because they have figured out that our borders are so porous. Yeah, right? they, they but, figured out yeah, if, but, they, can all, we, if right. they can all go in there, we can exactly. too. But the, the primary problem is Central America, South America, Mexico, mm-hmm. and we're coming up to the 
point where people actually do start to get interested in the 2024 presidential election, Mm -hmm. right? I would really like to see a Republican competitor for the nomination express some interest in South America and Central America and say, you know what? We, we need to be worried about stuff halfway around the world, but we need to be more concerned about stuff that's right here in our own hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And you just you just don't hear it. You, I don't know that any Republican contender for the presidential nomination right now could name seven South American countries. Oh, no. You know, it's not, it's not a major point of discussion. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's just it's it's a terrible lapse. Well, we let, let's just conclude by saying um he may disappoint us and he may not succeed. He, yeah, we, we need to acknowledge yeah. he's got a big hill to climb when you're trying to change a country with that many people on the federal dole. Yeah. And you're starting to try to cut those transfer payments. That's going to make a number of people upset. You, you, you called it uphill. I think that's exactly right. It's an uphill thing. It's an uphill battle. He may not succeed. Mm-hmm. He might turn out to be a crazy person. Who knows, right? But the fact that the that the people of Argentina decided to make a break with the past and choose something radically different should be encouraging really in and of deal. itself. Really big deal. Absolutely. Especially since Colombia just recently went to this first leftist president and yeah. uh, some of the others. It's going, Argentina is trying to go in a different South, direction. South America needs a country to show a better path than what some of the other countries yeah. are doing. So, so Javier Mille, uh, you have our support. <laughs> we, <laughs> we wish you well. We are wishing you well. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We would invite you to check out our website at IPI.org. Sign up there if you'd like to receive notices of new podcast episodes, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or Spotify or your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcast episodes by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.